You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Rated PG-13. Empire. Hello and welcome to my podcast. Today, I talked to two of my ESPN colleagues about three quarterbacks of interest, Derek Carr, Marcus Mariota, and Sam Darnold. We don't know yet what direction Washington will go trying to bolster the position, but we do know each one is a person of interest. Then it all depends on the cost for each. Anyway, Paul Gutierrez, who covers the Raiders, provides insight into Carr and Mariota, as well as a cool little anecdote about Ron Rivera and new Hall of Fame coach, Tom Flores. And then Rich Samini provides insight into Darnold. After hearing him, you might want to you might hesitate to buy into any such move to get him again, depending on the cost. You can follow Paul on Twitter at P Gutierrez ESPN. That's P G U T I E R R E Z E S P N and Rich at Rich Samini. R-I-C-H-C-I-M-I-N-I. You can read my work on ESPN.com. Also, Stay tuned for another special offer later in the podcast. And again, Washington still has, they have quarterbacks on the roster with Taylor Heineke, Stephen Montez, um, Kyle Allen is an exclusive rights free agent, and they're still dealing with Alex Smith. And as my, my colleague Jeremy Fowler reported, and we've been I've been saying this, but Alex Smith wants to keep playing. I don't think there's any doubt about that. I think we've all seen, could tell that. But it's it's definitely he definitely wants to keep playing. I think from Washington's end, they're seeing which way they are going to go. One of the options is still having him come back, but it's certainly they're going to explore. As Rivera had told us on the podcast and and others, they're going to explore all options. Anyway, before I get to my guests, I did want to share a few nuggets or at least a couple little things with you. I failed to discuss Marty Schottenheimer's death on the previous podcast. He was only here one year, but I've always felt like the biggest mistake Dan Snyder made was firing him after that season. Not only did they lose him, but they also lost John Schneider, who was in their who was their player personnel guy at the time. They could have set this franchise up for a while with Schottenheimer being here for five, six, seven years, whatever, and then Schneider kind of taking over as far as you know having more power in the front office and building things the way he wanted to. However, Dan Snyder was so early in the process, it never really had a chance. I'm not even sure if it would have a chance now, but it certainly had none back then. What Snyder want, what Dan Snyder wanted was power and to be heavily involved, more than he is now. Schottenheimer really didn't want to consult with him as much as the owner wanted, and it hurt the relationship. In truth, some of Snyder's partners disliked Marty from the time he fired Vinny Serrato that winter. Then, Schottenheimer ticked off some vets having an Oklahoma drill on the first day of practice while later showing Daryl Green how to field a punt. I think Schottenheimer's training camps were the most exhausting that I covered. Two-a-days, full pads every day. It was brutal. That team was awful in the preseason and lost the first five games. I remember being with Rick Snyder. God, there's a lot of Snyder, Snyder, Snyders. Rick Snyder with them with the Washington Times and Schottenheimer in the lobby of the 
it was Rick and Schottenheimer and myself in the lobby of the practice facility. This was after two games. Rick told him he was already hearing rumors about Marty's job security. Marty dismissed it completely, and I can still see it's like, no way, no way. Didn't think there was any chance it was going to happen. Of course, Rick was on target. This was maybe the one of the best coach teams I've seen in my time covering Washington. They won eight games with Tony frickin' Banks starting at quarterback. Sean, you know, listen, they, not only that, but like you looked at that. Because I had followed Schottenheimer's career as a coach from the time he was in Cleveland through Kansas City, I grew up in Cleveland, so those teams were kind of like were a big deal to me. But he would, I knew what kind of a coach he was. I also knew that his ego tripped him up, and it tripped him up in Cleveland, and it tripped him up here too. But I also knew what a well-coached team he would always have here, or excuse me, there, Kansas City, and then his one season here. And I always kept thinking, like, I can't believe this is a Schottenheimer coach team. But you didn't know. You'd look at that roster and say, but where are the wins going to come from? It, they just didn't have a whole lot. And then they cut Jeff George. Um, but what Schottenheimer did is he built a team that had a mentality. And he wanted an identity, and he got it. After five games, there was a near mutiny. I remember how miserable Chris Samuels how miserable he looked. He was then a rookie. After 16 games, there was near universal buy-in. I'd say the only two who really didn't buy in was Daryl Green, or were Daryl Green, and Bruce Smith. I think they both kind of knew they'd be in trouble if Schottenheimer returned for a second season. I also remember Green one time telling me a year or two later about how he met with Marty when Marty first got here, and how Daryl was telling him all these things he had going on in his life, from the foundation to this thing and that thing. He said he later realized all Schottenheimer wanted to know is, do you still want to play ball? That's what he was looking for, guys who wanted to play ball. Now, I think at that time, Daryl still did because he still put in the prep work, etc. Anyway, it's just kind of Schottenheimer's mentality. The other thing I always remember is they were they were terrible. The answer to every question was, you know, why why what do you guys need to do? His answer, answer was always work harder. And it's kind of a message I always give to my kids too. Something's not going right, work harder. Anyway, um, I also remember sitting in the press room with Liz Clark when news broke of Steve Spurrier's resignation. She immediately said, he's coming here. It wasn't fact. She just knew that Dan Snyder would pursue him. I had some doubts because I'm like, why would you fire Schottenheimer? But she knew people like Snyder better than I did. And she was right. Anyways, it's a shame how it ended, but it provided a glimpse into Snyder's ownership. And it's a, it's a shame for, for Marty Schottenheimer that he never got to the Super Bowl or did anything like that. Because the guy was a terrific, terrific coach. On Taylor Heineke, when the detail of his contract emerged, it's clear that this is really a one-year deal for $1.5 million. If he doesn't win the job and he remains, say, a third stringer, he won't be paid much. If he wins the backup job or even starts games, he has a chance for incentives. But it's not a deal that screams, we know he can be our guy, or even he's our top backup. Nothing like that. And if he doesn't do the job after one year, they can get out of the deal. It's, there's, no, there's no harm. I mean, it's $1.5 million guaranteed. That is it. Now, it's a good deal for him if he goes and proves himself. It gives him the opportunity to win a job and then to earn more money. That's great. It's what he, it's, I think it's perfect for him. I'll have more in coming days on the complete breakdown of his deal as far as what has to happen to earn more, um, to earn all that money. It's, only, it's like eight, almost $8.8 million over two years. What has to go right for him to earn that? So don't look at it as a four, four point two or four point four million per year. It's not. It's one point five million guaranteed. Everything else has to be earned. Injuries have been a concern with him, and he told us that he was going to bulk up this offseason. That's very wise. Now, clearly, he would have been trying to do that in the past. It hasn't happened, but you know that that's going to be a bigger emphasis for him 
this contract gives him a lot more opportunity to um, buys him some security where he can then just worry about training in the offseason. That's good for him. He also said he was going to alter his playing style. So, for example, maybe he doesn't die for that touchdown if it were a regular season game in the third week or whatever. To that I say, not sure I'm buying it. I'm sure he means it. I don't doubt that for a second. But I can't tell you how many quarterbacks I've heard say something similar. I'm going to alter my ways, only to not do it. It goes like I remember Rex Grossman in 2011. He was benched because he'd throw interceptions. He'd talk about it taking him, you know, after, when he was benched, he's like, I gotta be more smart. I gotta be a little more cautious with the ball. He'd go in for a game and he'd be more cautious. And you could tell it ate him up. It lasted a game. Then he literally told us, I said, F it, let it fly. And he did. And he didn't say, just say F it. He used the whole word. Anyway, Colt McCoy, Robert Griffin III, they all talked about sometimes taking a different approach to their game, only to realize this is who they are. The reason Heineke put himself in this position is because he played this way. I don't know that you can just go from being ultra-aggressive to not being that way and to playing with a certain level of hunger. I don't think you want a guy like Heineke somehow feeling like, okay, I can just protect myself because a guy like that's always going to feel like if I don't take this approach, am I going to lose this spot, whether it's a starter, backup, whatever it is. So I, you know, I think it's it's great if he can do that and become smarter and protect himself more, but you know, I just I still think it's going to be difficult for him to pull it off at a complete level on the way they need. But again, the way this contract is structured, they're looking at him as a backup, which is why we're going to be talking about some of these other possible starters later in the podcast. And if he earns more than that, then he'll be paid more than that. I do think Washington has interest in all the quarterbacks we'll discuss later on this podcast. The one thing to know with Mariota is that his contract contains escalator clauses, so if he's traded and is a starter, his salary basically doubles. The Raiders need the salary cap room. I don't know what they'd accept in a deal, but he is on the last year of his contract, and again, because of the money going up, it can't be a lot that they're going to get back, I think, if they really want to create some space. Washington does have an extra third-round pick to play with. I wouldn't give up a lot from Mariota, but I do find him intriguing because of the mobility. And he did play well when he went in this season, and he clearly is a, a guy who has ability. I remember a coach in Tennessee that I knew once telling me how much he liked Mariota. And this was, I was a little bit surprised at how much he liked him. He felt Mariota that year was ready to take off. I want to say maybe he was 17 or 18, um, maybe 17. Injuries, I think there were some issues with injuries, and he didn't play that well either. It wasn't just injuries. He's worth a shot, but that's the only way to look at it, worth a shot. I kind of put you know, cars in a different category, but I think Darnold is in that same boat where you have to say worth a shot. If you trade for Darnold, though, I think because of his contract, you almost need to be convinced that he's your guy and you can build with him because you probably want to extend him because you're probably going to have to give up a little more to get him, I think. Anyway, with either, I think especially with Mariota, if you got him and you're only giving up a little and there's no extension, clearly it doesn't mean your long-term search is over. It's just that, hey, get through the, you know, you're not giving up a lot for a guy who's a starter or likely a starter, and then you can build around them. Anyway, that's it for me. After this break, I'll be back with ESPN's Paul Gutierrez to discuss two quarterbacks. Washington has been monitoring Derek Carr and Marcus Mariota. Welcome back. Now here's my conversation with ESPN's Paul Gutierrez. Well, Paul, before I get to the quarterbacks, I've got to ask, I know that Tom Flores meant a great deal to you. 
So to see him finally get in the Hall of Fame, what do you what did it mean to see that? And you know, just go there. Yeah, it, you know, John, it was, it was uh, number one. Thanks for having me. But but number two, to answer your question, I mean, it, it's just kind of like it's strange because you know, as journalists, you, you're supposed to be objective. You're supposed to go straight, stay straight down the middle. And yet, there's there's an advocacy that that is inherent in journalism as well. And when you're trying to to bang the drum for a guy that you believe deserves his rightful place in the Hall of Fame, you, you kind of do that. And that's what the Pro Football Hall of Fame lends itself to. It becomes a, a campaign. And I, I had to look back and see when the last time I really put it in print. And um, I believe the earliest I saw was 2007 when I was at the Sacramento Bee, wondering out loud, wait a minute, what, what's, what's wrong with Tom Flores and, and Jim right. Plunkett for that matter? Why aren't they in there? So you just keep digging, you keep writing, you keep uh, advocating, you keep going on the radio, on, on sports and whatever it may be. And when it finally comes to fruition, especially after the past two years of, of heartbreak, especially last year with that Blue Ribbon Committee, um, it, it, it's like you can finally exhale. Uh, and, and that's just my perspective. I can only imagine what Tom Flores and his family were feeling and are still feeling to this day uh, a couple days after it was made official. Now, I did talk to him um, before it became official and I was able to, to put it out there. He let me put it out there uh, that he was going in. And he had told me he had known for a week. And that was probably the hardest wow. was he couldn't say anything about it, um, just his immediate family. So uh, to see it come to fruition, to see it finally happening, it, it's just a huge sigh of relief because I don't know if there's anybody else that I've covered uh, since I've been doing this where it's felt like, wait a minute, this is a big snub. This is a huge omission, especially considering not just what he did on the field, but what he did so many people off the field um, by being pioneer and by being a minority by being a latino especially um you know my my personal story with tom flores goes back to when i was a high school senior after i graduated high school we went to hawaii for our senior trip uh we back into x and i'm picking up my bags and i'm thinking okay i'm senior trip is done uh i saw to the real world what am i going to do with my life i didn't really know what i wanted to do yet at that point <laughs> and i look at the carousel the baggage carousel and i see some raider gear going by and i'm thinking oh that's interesting because you know at that time huge Raider fan up and I see a man come up and start grabbing me, look up and it's Tom Flores and I'm just thinking wow at this kind of rite of passage moment for myself um to be sharing an airplane back from Hawaii to to the to the mainland with uh, Tom Flores who really just uh res resigned as the Raider coach anyway uh, and wow. to all these years later to be able to talk to him and, and to kind of I'm not even going to you know say that I shared in the moment but I was able to 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 document his journey um, it was really something special on a personal level. So long-winded answer to your short question, but uh, I hope I kind of encapsulated it for you. Absolutely. The other thing is too, because there's a connection here, Ron Rivera, what do you think that, and I don't, and I haven't talked to Ron too much about Tom, but I am curious from your, you follow this and know about it. What do you think that a guy like Tom meant to Ron Rivera? And I've asked Ron about this before. When when uh, the Panthers were in the Super Bowl out here in the Bay Area back in 2016, I asked him then uh, at the Super Bowl media night, which was all a circus anyways, right? right. But I asked him about Tom Flores, and he, and he mentioned that he was a, a role model for him because as a player, he's playing at Cal in the Bay Area. The Raiders are, are winning Super Bowl 15 when they were still in Oakland, and then they go to L.A. and they win again. And, and Ron Rivera is on that, that famed Super Bowl team in the mid-'80s for the Bears, and, and they played the Raiders in 84. So he told me at that time that he would look up to him because, you know, these are more my words than his, but you look across and you see somebody that kind of looks like you, that 
that gives you a certain uh, reason to aspire to, to to loftier goals. And that is uh, essentially what, what Ron has told me in the past, that if he looked over and saw somebody that, that kind of looked like him and had a similar upbringing and, and uh, could relate to him, then it let him know that these things could be done. So um, it would be interesting to get Ron's take now that it's a, officially a done deal and he is going to get his bust, he is going to get his his jacket, but to to be able to to look at him and see that, hey, these are things that can be done, and it just gives you one more point of pride and inspiration going forward. Okay, let's shift to quarterbacks. Um, <laughs> Derek Carr, that's he's a, a hot name in this offseason so far because there's always those domino effects. What is his situation there, and do you anticipate <laughs> anything happening with him? You know, it's interesting, uh, out in, in Las Vegas, uh, it, it's in the Bay Area before that it was always the offseason was Derek Carr speculation season and because <laughs> you just his name was always going to come up in trade rumors and and because to me you know I've covered this team uh, pretty regularly since 2005 um, whether it was for the Sacramento Bee, CSN Bay Area, ESPN and I've never seen and, and I will I will go to my grave with this I've never seen a more polarizing figure in Raider history wow. than Derek Carr simply because People either love him or they loathe him, and there is nothing in between when it comes to him. <laughs> you, you, you do a blind taste test, so to speak. You look, you look at his stats, you're like, wow, 4,000 pass yards, 25 or so touchdowns, less than 10 interceptions, quarterback rating in the hundreds. What's not to like? And then there's just something missing, and that something missing is, is getting to the playoffs. Now, granted, in 2016, um, a broken leg in the next to last game of the season derailed that, so he wasn't able to play, but he led. But, you know, he's got a losing record. He's never had a, you know, he's only had the one winning record. Um, and yet, you know, we had this assignment this week, because I'm sure you know, uh, you know, bold offseason prediction. Right. My bold offseason prediction for the second year in a row is Derek Carr will remain a Raider. Because there's going to be story after story <laughs> after story that Derek Carr is moving on and he's going to get two first-round picks. And, and I'm of the mind, well, if that's the case, then you're bearing the lead. The Raiders should have moved on from him a long time ago if they can get two first-round picks for him to help fix that defense. But, um, you know, his name's always going to be out there, uh, talking to people in the building, talking to sources close to him. He fully expects to continue his career and finish his career as a Raider. He holds virtually every Raider passing record anyway. It's just there's something missing. And when you try to put your finger on it, it's it's getting to the playoffs, taking that next step. And, uh, you know, this would be his fourth straight year in Gruden's system, and last year was his best year in Gruden's system. I would say that 2016 was his best overall year, but last year was right up there with it as well. And then, you know, obviously with John Gruden, he has a reputation for changing his mind on quarterbacks. How firm is how firm do you think he is uh, on Derek Carr? I always put it this way, John, that uh, if Derek is Mr. Right, he's Mr. Right now. And really, okay. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I don't know how much, you know, love affair can continue. I don't know how he likes to flirt. He's always going to flirt. John's always going right. to flirt with other guys and, and look out there and see what's out there. And he should. Uh, you know, he's, he's kind of a quarterback whisperer. At least that's how he kind of sees himself. And, and others see him in the industry is that way. So he's going to look out there and see. It's not so much are they going to fall out of love or anything like that. It's, does he think something better to improve the team? At this stage, you've got a guy that's already been in your system for three years and can make every throw. I do know that he wishes that he would extend plays more. Uh, we saw a little flash of that with Marcus Mariota when he replaced him in a game against right. uh, the Chargers this year. So that's the only thing that I wonder is, is will he get distracted by a shy thing? And 
I'm not here to advocate one way or the other, but if it comes down to finances and, and uh, you know, Mark the skill set really more closely resembles what John wants to do on offense anyway, well, then that's something they have to think about. Um, but, uh, you know, I, to, to kind of frame it as a love affair or, or when is he going to fall out of love, I, you know, I, I think we're beyond that because you know, the, the guy's been with him for three years and he's, he's right. steadily uh, progressed every season since. And last thing on him, how tight were he and how good was the relationship with Derek Carr and Jack Del Rio? Thick as thieves. They, they were very tight. The only time I ever saw any sort of crack in that relationship was in 2017. Uh, Derek Carr took a beating at the Denver Broncos, uh, ended up breaking a couple bones in his back, and he only missed one game. But in the immediate aftermath of that game in Denver, uh, Jack said at the podium, yeah, he's just, you know, just got a sore back. He'll be fine. Gumbridge with that. He's like, oh, really? Well, that's nice to know. So and then there's one of the few times you actually saw Derek Carr uh, show a little annoyance with Jack at that time. So I do know that when Jack was fired at the end of that 2017 season, when Mark Davis was able to secure a commitment from John Gruden, um, I hung out down in the locker room area trying to see exactly what was going on, trying to get try to, to, to paint a better picture for the fans. And, and the last two players that were with Jack uh, off in a side room were Derek Carr and Khalil Mack. So hmm. very tight. Uh, I'm sure they keep in contact to this day. Um, and I think I know where you're going with this, right? <laughs> well, I mean, yes. I mean, that's yes, of course. I didn't, I wasn't trying to hide that either. <laughs> but I also don't think, I, I mean, unless, unless, unless the Raiders go out and get Deshaun Watson, it's hard to see them moving on from Carr. And I don't see this team giving up two first round picks. But there is another guy that could be available in Marcus Mariota. You, there are some cap issues yeah. there. Do you think that he is a more likely target for teams um, because of that? Yeah, and with Marcus, his cap is significantly lower than Derek's as well, uh, just over $10 million, I believe. And, and, you know, basically he's taken a whole season and a half off. So he's fresh. Uh, he looked fearless when he played in that game. He wasn't afraid to, to tuck the ball and run. A lot of read options that we hadn't seen in a long, long time uh, with the Raiders, if at all. So uh, he he might be a more better, uh, you know, more prime candidate to be traded. Uh, interestingly enough, the Raiders did give a million dollars guaranteed to bring back Nate Peterman to be a right. backup quarterback. So uh, if you want to start looking at tea leaves and, and uh, seeing exactly the way things are going, that might be a good place to start, too. What do you what did you think of Mariota? I mean, I know. You know, it's, it was a weird year to get a feel for guys, but what did you think? What did you hear about yeah. him? And if is he somebody who could – I've talked to some people, Paul, who feel like he'd have to be a guy who comes in and competes for a starting job rather than is given one. What What did you hear about him behind the scenes or anything like that, that, um, you know, about him? Yeah, he was – this past year for him was basically a maintenance year. Um, he, he showed up to the Raiders in, in that truncated training camp uh, dealing with ankle and elbow and shoulder and – Injuries all over the place and a couple surgeries, too. So he was able to kind of just get himself right, both physically and mentally, which the mental part might actually have been the most important thing. And when he got his opportunity to, to replace Derek, who strained a groin against the Chargers uh, on a short week, I believe it was a Thursday night game, he mm -hmm. came in and didn't really look like he had missed a beat. And it was actually really impressive the way he handled that offense. Derek Carr takes 99.9% .9 of the snaps in practice all week long, which I'm sure every starter in the, in the NFL does anyway. But for him to get out there, uh, he had them on the brink of winning that game through a bad interception late, but still led them downfield on the opening possession of overtime, had them at the five-yard line first and goal, couldn't punch it in, settle for a field goal, and then the defense let them down again and they drove down. So 
what I thought was interesting was Derek Carr was nowhere near 100% the next game against Miami. And yet uh, John let Derek talk him into playing. And hmm. Derek, after the game, said that he would never want to be seen as being selfish, uh, that his team and did put them in the position to succeed anyway. He'd feel bad. Well, that's exactly what happened in that game because the Raiders were already out of it. Uh, there was nothing to do other than just see what Marcus Mariota can do. So that, to me, is one of the unanswered questions is how good could Marcus Mariota have looked or how would he have played if he had had a full week of practice knowing that he was going to be the guy? Instead, that those three quarters that he played against the Chargers, we got to see of them. It was impressive. It's a nice there in case there's, there's teams looking for him. But uh, he does have a pretty decent-sized contract, especially for a backup quarterback. Right, and that's the last thing. Do you think they have to trade him then because of that? Uh, it depends upon, again, teams can always figure out the salary cap, right? If they want somebody, they'll make room right. for them. Uh, the Raiders over the cap. We don't know what that number is going to be at this moment. They've got a lot of decisions to make, and it's not just at quarterback. It's at right tackle with Trent Brown. It's at receiver with Nelson Aguilar. It's this defense again under Gus Bradley. So there's a lot of other things that have to happen first before I believe they figure out exactly, okay, well, where do we allocate this money? Do they, do they give Carr an extension that's, that's heavily backloaded so that they can free up some more money going forward? Because, you know, in 2017, Derek signed that five-year $125 million deal. And, and you know, the going rate for a starting quarterback this, in these times, and especially if he's a top 10, yeah, Derek did have the 10th highest quarterback rating. Uh, it's going to be more expensive than that. There you go. Paul, thanks a lot for joining me. I hope to see you in the fall when this team actually plays at Las Vegas and you can take me to some bingo parlors for a night out. How's that? Bingo? Well, uh, as Wesley Snipes said in uh, Passenger 57, always better black. My, the last time I was out in Vegas, I did, I did win at some blackjack. And my wife, though, when I was winning at blackjack, not a lot. I mean, we're talking enough to cover dinners. <laughs> But while I was doing that, my wife actually was upstairs in a bingo game, and she was winning at bingo. So that's you know, awesome. That's yeah, awesome. I'm not sure. We, I'm not sure we could have been a younger or older younger couple. So there you go. <laughs> After this break, I'll be back with ESPN's Rich Samini as we discuss Sam Darnold. Rich has covered Darnold's tenure, so he knows him well. He's not as optimistic about Darnold as a few people I've spoken to in recent weeks. Find out why. Welcome back. Now here's my conversation with ESPN's Rich Samini. All right, Rich. Well, I guess the before we even go further on this, I guess the big question is, is Sam Darnold really being shopped around the league? I mean, what's the likelihood of this guy being even traded? Yeah, John, I don't think the Jets are actively shopping the guy. Uh, I, I think they're getting calls on him from teams that are in this uh, so-called quarterback carousel, probably like Washington. I, I mean, they're, they're probably one of the teams that called. So I think teams are just calling around. I think half the league is looking for a quarterback right now, and I'm sure that's why the Jets are getting calls there. But I do think there is a chance that he will be traded if they get the right offer. Do you, do you think How sold are they on? The, if they're willing to trade him, they can't be that sold on him. But what do you think their opinion is of him? From I know it's a new regime. But what do you think their opinion is of him? Yeah, I think there's a, a, some mixed uh, opinion in the organization right now. I, I do know that Robert Sala thinks highly of him, and uh, he has spoken glowingly of him publicly. But I, I take that with a little bit of grain of salt because it just we're in the silly season now and everyone is kind of stretching the truth. But 
I talk to people who know Salah, and they say that he genuinely thinks that the guy can improve with a better scheme and better coaching. On the other hand, I don't know if the front office is, is convinced about Darnold. I, I think there's some major questions that they have. So I, I think they're really hashing through it right now, John. I, I, I think there's some very mixed opinion. And why wouldn't there be? I mean, the guy has not been right. a productive quarterback for three years. No, and I think, and you just had an article on this, you know, on, based on looking at next-gen stats and how he's one of the lowest-rated passers or the lowest over the last couple of years. But yet, yet, like you, like I've talked to people around the league who say, that's the guy that I would go get if I was Washington. And you're hearing good things from other people. So why is there such a dichotomy, you think, with him? I think people are still uh, remembering that he was taken third overall in, in the 2018 draft, and they figure if a guy's taken that high, there must be some physical talent there. Uh, and there is physical talent. His arm is good enough. He throws really well on the run. It's just that his decision-making is very sketchy. He, I think he has trouble reading defenses. Uh, he, oftentimes, he'll lock on his first progression and he only sees the primary defender. I, I can't even recall how many of his interceptions came when really the secondary defender on the play, you know, made the interception. So I don't think he sees the field exceptionally well. And that, and that's which would lend itself because he does turn the ball over a lot. Behind yeah. the scenes, what is he like as, as far as like his work, his, you know, just how teammates view him and all that? Blue collar guy, hard worker. Uh, his teammates really like him. I've never heard anyone say anything negative about him. You know, he, he just seems like he wants to be good. You know, some quarterbacks, I mean, well, you probably covered one this one this past season. Yes. And has, you know, if they don't want to be good or great, then, you know, they're fighting a losing battle. The one negative with Darnold, and some might not perceive it as a negative, some might, he's pretty laid back. You know, he's got that SoCal, Southern California personality. And I know some some executives really want their quarterback to be a take-charge guy. You know, he's not Baker Mayfield. He's the opposite. He's really a, more of a quiet guy, laid back, leads by example. If you want your quarterback to be a dynamic personality and charismatic, then he's probably not your guy. You know, and it's funny because you do hear that from some people like, well, he's he's California. You know, like about, really, about other really players, you talk to scouts, like he's California, he's California, and you know exactly what they're saying. It's that, and it's, you know, whether it's fair or not, that's what they mean. Yeah. Um, so you don't you don't view him as much of a as a because again, I know one of the things that Washington would like for with from Rivera is a strong leader. Is he not that? Yeah, he's not going to walk into a room and and take charge. I mean, I've covered guys like that uh, you know even like covering Ryan Fitzpatrick for a couple of years he was he was a more of a vocal guy he you know he would be you know gravitate towards a leadership role Sam is more one of the guys okay and not the guy and uh you know you saw him this year it was his third year so he kind of took more of a leadership role but not not like he's I mean, look, Eli Manning was laid back and won two Super Bowls. Right. So, you know, it can be done for sure. But, you know, Sam is not uh, – he's not a vocal guy. You know, he'll lead by his work ethic and by example. How much has he been victimized by the situation there? Very much so. I mean, that's the thing that makes this evaluation so hard and why you have to look past the numbers. 
he was not well coached the last two years under Adam Gase. You know, I mean, the funny thing is they scored on a lot of their first possessions. So when they script their first 15 plays, whatever was on that script would work. But then when they were off the script, everything went to hell in a handbasket <laughs> after that. And so he was not well coached. He has not been around a what I would call like an elite talent. I mean, they signed Le'Veon Bell to be that guy. Le'Veon right. Bell is done. I mean, as you saw with the Chiefs, right. he was not – you know, the, the one good player they had was Robbie Anderson, and they let him go to Carolina. And so Sam has not had a go-to guy. I just dug up this stat yesterday. Out of his 38 career starts, only in four of those games did the Jets rush for 150 yards. Wow. So he's <laughs> he's never even had a running game that could take some of the burden off. So, yes, that is definitely part of the equation. And also, like, when you look at this quarterback class, and you talked to Melk Hyper about this, and I did too, like, he thinks that five quarterbacks are going to go in the top 15 probably, or po very possible. How much – which quarterback do you think that might tempt the Jets at number two? Well, I think it would be Zach Wilson for sure, just on the style of offense they're going to run. They're going to run a, a Shanahan version of the West Coast, which, you know, you're familiar with, right. you know, having seen it and having coached having covered some of the Shanahan disciples. Um, you know, Michael LaFleur, the younger brother of Matt, is going to be the Jets' offensive coordinator. So they're very much going to run that offense. And I think Zach Wilson, from what I've been told, really fits that because he can throw on the run. He can make off-schedule plays. His arm talent, I, I don't think there's any question about his arm talent. There's some other issues with Zach Wilson, just in maybe in terms of durability and level of competition, that might be a question. But I think in terms of scheme fit, I think he'd be perfect for the Jets. Knowing what you know about Donald having covered him, what would you give up for him? I would not give up a low one. I know our colleague Adam Schefter has, has talked on, on television saying that he thinks lo a low first-round pick could be in play. If the Jets get a first, a low one, I would say – Thanks, Sam. It was nice knowing you. Goodbye. You know, I would take that. Absolutely. I would even take, you know, something in the top half of the second round. I think that would be an excellent value because the, the, the one part of the equation we haven't mentioned, he's only got one year left on right. his contract, on his rookie contract. So, you know, he, they may lose him for nothing in a year. So if personally, I wouldn't give anything higher than a three, but given the market, you know, I think the Jets would would definitely get a two for him. Yeah, and that's what I was going to ask you, and I wanted to close on that too, what you think they would take for him. Because I agree with you, and I, I do think if somebody trades for him, I would think that they're if they, especially if they give up a one, they're going to extend him. You have to do that if you give him up a one for him. So you'd have to really have liked him before coming out of the draft and like some of the stuff you've seen. What do you think they would accept for him, though? Yeah, I think the Jets would take something in the top – probably in the top 40 to 50 picks, you know, I think they would take something there. Um, you mentioned the extent, I mean, May 3rd is the deadline for the 50 year option. So that's going to be tw about 25 million. And, you know, as you know, with the new, the new rules, that's, that's fully guaranteed from the moment you exercise that option. So essentially Darnold will cost your salary cap 35 million over the next two years. So if you're a team that really believes in your college scouting reports on him, you know, maybe you make that investment, you know, two years, 35 million, 
and you get a starting quarterback. But for me, I would not pick up that option. I have not seen enough in three years to say I'm going to spend that kind of money on this player. I mean, he really hasn't had a stretch of games where you could say like two or three games in a row where you could say, wow, look at that. You know, there's the guy we drafted. He hasn't had that. And that's why any team that, that drafts, I think he'd be great in, in Indianapolis because I really think Frank Reich is a, a, a true quarterback whisperer in Washington. I, I, I don't know if, do they believe in their offensive staff that much to where they would say, we can fix this guy? Well, they have know. a guy, and they have a quarterbacks coach in Ken Zampezi who's very experienced. So I think they would rely on that a lot. Yeah. Uh, but I think you're right. I think it's, I do think you have to rely on that. And the people that I've talked to about him, they all liked him coming out. And yeah. so I think they, they're clinging to that and just assuming it was all about being in New York as much as anything. Well, I, let me, I would summarize Darnold this way. You know, he's not a guy who's going to win games for you, but you can win games with him. Okay. I think I think that would be the best way to summarize him. I think his ceiling in the right system with the right coaching staff is probably a middle of the pack. I could like in the in the 14 to 18 range of starting quarterbacks. I think that's his ceiling. I don't see, I don't see him going higher than that. So, if he lands in the right place and a team is willing to pay the money and the draft picks for that type of quarterback, then, you know, it'd be a good fit. There you go. Rich, awesome insight. Thanks for coming on. All right, John. My pleasure. Thanks. That's it for this episode. Thanks to Paul and Rich for joining me, and thank you for listening. It was a long episode, so I hope you enjoyed it. Also, for those of you who stuck with this one, I'm offering another private Zoom session where to the, to the first five people who provide me an answer to this question. Who is your favorite Washington receiver from the past? No current receivers are eligible. And just know the last time we did this, I had five other people on the Zoom session. We talked for about 30 or 40 minutes, so I answer as many questions as I can. Anyway, I'll have another episode later this week. Talk to you next time.